If you don't have a Bible, you should look near a, on a, under a pew chair near you. You may find one. Um, and I encourage you to take one and follow along. In fact, is this morning, um, I'm simply going to uh, read through the passage before we start. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. Just a little background. Uh, I wasn't going to preach this morning. Jacques from Africa was supposed to be here. He couldn't get. He tried, I think, three times, two or three times to get a, uh, um, a visa to get here. That did not materialize. And then John Corley, who works with uh, the people in Africa, was going to be here. But he's been in Africa for six months, and he just came home, I believe, yesterday, and he is totally exhausted. And so his wife emailed and begged off for him to speak. So I decided not to do my normal, because I'm, as you know, preaching through the book of Psalms, and I decided to do a sermon that I have been determined to do for many years and just never did it. I do believe that Satan is alive and well, and I believe the moment I started working on this sermon, he went to work. Now, thankfully, the techies from church helped me get out of it, because uh, you won't find any PowerPoints or anything fancy this morning, because my computer... Uh, fought with me all day. Matt Grab and uh, Mike Garman have been harassed by me all week, um, calling them at inordinate times to uh, see what to do next. And anyway, I think it works now, but anyhow, it didn't work all week. It was fighting with me. But I decided that I'm going to teach this morning on a passage that I have used many times as illustrations in counseling. Uh, and I have been asked lots of questions about it, and I've had lots of opinions given to me about this passage. And a lot of them just simply will not hold water with exactly what the Scripture says. I hope that you were encouraged by Jesus' response. I hope that you're encouraged by the truth of the Word of God and that you know that sin is something that God definitively deals with uh, and it's dealt with ultimately through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, if you would, please, John chapter 8, the first 11 verses. But, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in her midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, uh, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. And when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she had been in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way from now on and sin no more. Once again, Will didn't know it, but that whole theme that he dealt with in some of the songs this morning about condemnation 
fits right in with what we're going to look at this morning. I've entitled the sermon, The Original Scarlet Letter. How many of you have read The Scarlet Letter? How many of you know about The Scarlet Letter? Okay, most of you do. Somewhere along the line in high school, in a literature class or college or whatever, uh, you might have had early American literature, and that may have been one of the, the readings. Um, I took early American literature because I had to at Hack, and um, I didn't take it because I really wanted to, but boy, am I glad I did. The fact is, if somebody really wanted to do the research and wanted to teach a Sunday school class and look at some of that and the biblical principles, you would be amazed at what a lot of the early American writers wrote about and the depth that they went into to take apart the effects of sin and the human nature and forgiveness and and a lot of horrible things that were practiced too and put them all together uh, in a story form. But anyway, one of those along with the black cat, remember that one, or the telltale heart, Edgar Allan Poe type stuff, all of them had an underlying moral, ethical, and spiritual theme. These guys were Puritans, and uh, they knew the Bible. In fact, is when you read these things, you go, wow, I know where they got that idea from. So that's what I did here. I call that, uh, this one, the sermon this morning, the original Scarlet Letter. But let's go back and look at the early American literature just to give us a taste of what's going on. Might, might encourage you to go to a library or get on the internet and read it. But you might remember it was Nathaniel Hawthorne that wrote it. Uh, he wrote it about the 17th century. And uh, in a New England town, Hester had committed adultery. In fact, as everyone knew it, because she was pregnant. Her husband was not around. He was still in England. In fact, as they thought he had been lost at sea because she had been sent ahead to get things set up and he was going to take care of business and come later. Obviously, he hadn't gotten there. She got pregnant. She refused to give up the name of the person who was the father of the baby. And so those uh, of that New England town harangued her. They put on a uh, scarlet rag on her gown, which mysteriously, remember this is a novel, mysteriously turned into a scarlet capital letter A. She had to go through town every place she went with the A. I'm an adulteress. One day an older stranger came to town and he wanted to know what all the fuss was about and someone told him that uh, Hester was being punished because uh, she had committed adultery and uh, they just were not going to let her forget about that. Now what you don't know if you haven't read the story is this older gentleman who showed up was indeed her husband and he's out for revenge because somebody had committed adultery with his wife. And so he's intent on that, and he goes to Hester and says, look, she didn't recognize him at first. She said, look, I'm your husband, and uh, he swore her to secrecy, and so they lived there. But he was now representing himself as a physician, and there was only one person who came to Hester's side, and that was Pastor Dimsdale. He was the community pastor, and he was the only one in town that was trying to help her out. He being a physician... um, volunteered to help the pastor who was in ailing health. He had some mysterious heart disease. Uh, It was a psychological issue. 
Now we know if you read the story, you know he's the culprit. He is the adulterer. And he is trying to help her out. But her husband becomes his doctor, and he is intent on revenge. Now, he doesn't have to do a whole lot, because we find out, as her husband did, he is suspicious that the pastor was the one who committed adultery. And so one night, while he's asleep, he sneaks into his room and sees, indeed, that he had seared an A on his chest um, with heat. And so he also has an A, and he is torturing himself outside and psychologically being torn apart on the inside. In case you don't know this, sin unconfessed, unrepented of it, of will tear you apart as quick or quicker than any cancer or any heart disease or any other physical ailment. And that's exactly what he's happen, is happening to him. He's punishing himself and being punished by the sin itself because sin has its own built-in consequences. Eventually, Hester does inform um, the pastor of her husband's uh, identity, and they decide they're going to take off and go to England, get out of this. Meanwhile, the pastor decides the book passage on that same ship, but he has one last sermon. The most eloquent sermon, the strongest, most powerful sermon he ever preached was that Sunday morning. And then he was planning to get on the ship and board the ship and go off to England also. But as he comes to the town square, he sees Hester and the daughter that had been born out of that illicit relationship. And he instantly dies on the spot. Her husband, who is now deprived of his revenge within a year, also dies. Sin has built-in consequences. We know nothing of what happened to Hester and her daughter after that. Now that's a novel. If you would read it, you would find out that it's laced with the results of sin, revenge, adultery, and those types of things, unforgiveness, and just trying to really make somebody pay big time for their, for their sin. Find all of those things there. But that's not the sermon this morning. The sermon this morning starts in John chapter 7, the Feast of Booths. Remember, that was the time for seven days Israel was mandated by God to live in what we would call tents made out of uh, tree leaves. And for a week, they celebrated at the end of the harvest. And uh, Jesus had gone up to the The temple, he had gone up to Jerusalem because all adult males of Israel were uh, commanded to do that. He he had gone up secretly. In fact, the the Jewish leaders found out that he was there, and they did everything they could do. The Sanhedrin sent out warrants for his arrest, and the deputies that they sent out went to capture him. They were going to bring him back. The only difference is they got there, and they heard him speaking. And they came back and they said, where is he? And they said, no man has ever spoken like this man speaks. You see, the rest of the word of God says that he was one who spoke with authority. Not as the scribes and the Pharisees because they were hypocrites. By the way, that's going to be important here in a minute. They were hypocrites because on the inside they were one thing. On the outside they were like whitewashed graves. They were nice and shiny on the outside. On the inside full of dead man's bones. 
But Jesus spoke as one having authority. Why? Because his life backed up his words. And he was different. And so the religious leaders of Jesus' day were frustrated because the people they sent out to do their dirty work wouldn't do it. And now we come to John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, it says that Jesus had gone the night before to the Mount of Olives. I don't know if that's where he was staying or what the purpose was, but that early the next morning, which means daybreak, he came back into the temple. That was a habit of his. We know that from other scriptures. He came into the temple grounds. It wasn't a building like this, but it was the temple grounds, the courtyard. And most likely under Solomon's portico, he would sit down and the people would gather around. Now, I'm going to tell you, I believe he was the featured speaker. There didn't have to be announcements. If he showed up, people gathered because he spoke differently than the religious leaders of the day. He had something to say. He was speaking the very words of God. And they came and they listened. And so, uh, you'll excuse me, but I'm taking this off. Um, <clears throat> he drew a crowd, not because he tried just because of the authority of his words. And the people have gathered around, and they're listening. They have come to hear spiritual truth. They have a heart to know what is right and wrong. They want to know what God says. They want to hear about how to live life and what Christ is going to do for them and will do for them. And they are listening. They're intent. They're students with both ears open and their hearts open. First point is now there's an interruption. Bible study is going on. All of a sudden, here comes a woman being dragged in by the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, they're the religious leaders, some of them. And they're coming in. They're not coming because they want to hear what Jesus has to say. They're coming because they have an agenda. Now, ultimately, we already read, their agenda is to trap Jesus. They're coming to test him. That had been happening over and over in the Scriptures and continues to happen in the Gospels after this. They are testing Him because they don't like Him. He's a threat to their authority because He's speaking truth. He's no hypocrite. The people listen to Him. And they know He loves them and cares for them, but tells them the truth. The religious leaders have a job. And they have an agenda. And so they break up this perfectly good Bible study. And they come right in the midst. And they have a question for him. They say, hey, this woman has been caught in adultery the very act. What shall we do? The law says to stone her. i got to tell you, Jesus is the ultimate, and that shouldn't surprise any of you hearing that from me. He's the ultimate communicator. But he's way more than that. Because, and I do, the next time you're reading through the Gospels and you see a confrontation between the Jewish leaders and Jesus, they ask a question usually to test him, to trap him. And he doesn't answer their question. Not the way they ask it. He looks right through the trap, right to the heart of the matter. And he answers that. And that's exactly what he does here. Because what they have are not trumped up charges. She indeed did exactly what they said she did. But what they did is they brought her to the wrong person at the wrong place in the wrong venue. They were trying to get Jesus in trouble any way they could. He had no civil authority to do what they were asking him. He made it clear. He didn't come into the world to judge the world. 
He came that we might be saved. That's what His purpose was. There was a place for judgment. It was the Sanhedrin. The scribes and the Pharisees belonged to that. They knew exactly what to do. But they're going to trap Him. They're going to try to get Him to do something that He has no authority. See, He was not a part of the spiritual hierarchy of Jerusalem. Or Israel for the, all of Israel, for that matter. He had no official position. He had none of those things. He's the Son of God come to be an example, to show us what God is like to teach, and ultimately to die for the sins of the whole world. That's why he came. He wasn't a government authority. He wasn't politically correct in that direction. And he wasn't a religious authority politically correct in that direction. He was none of those. He had an entirely different agenda than they did. And even the religious leaders as a whole. And so they come to him. And he is going to skip right by their question and go right to their heart. And if you wondered why, and this always confused you, hopefully when you're done here, you'll have a little less confusion. And so they come in and they, they say to him, look, this woman, uh, we caught her in the very act of adultery. She is now in the midst, so now the crowd has stepped back just a little bit. And they are now in the middle. They're interrupters. She's right in the middle, and Jesus is right there. Now, you have to understand, when you read the Bible, not every detail of everything is spelled out. You know that, because there would just be way too much. You'd never even get read through it one time in your whole lifetime. So it doesn't give us all the details. So bear with me for a few moments in this sermon, and I will tell you when they are, to use sanctified imagination. That doesn't mean just a pure guess. That means take everything that you know about the Bible, about the culture of the day, and put it all together and kind of flesh it out a little bit. This one's about human nature. Think about this. There are all kinds of people in the temple grounds by now. A few of them are over here listening to Jesus. The rest are going in are offering sacrifices and they're doing all kinds of things, going about their normal religious business. And now there's a ruckus. This lady's been brought in. It's kind of loud. Something's disrupted. What do people do when they see something like that? The crowd is now bigger than ever. Okay, sanctified imagination. The whole thing is the buzz goes through that temple grounds like faster than you could use your cell phone. You couldn't text fast enough for that to go through there, right? It just goes, everybody's gathered around. So the big audience is now there. But the concentration is on the interrupters. So what's the accusation? They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught. And the way that's written in Greek means she was caught, dead to rights, she did it, and we know that she is still guilty. There was no doubt about it that she had been committing adultery had, and had been caught. And so she was guilty as guilty can be. Fact is, it says she was caught in the very act. Now, indulge me for a few moments. Caught in the very act has to do with, uh, uh, tells us a whole bunch of things. First of all, this sounds like a deliberate setup to me. Think this through for a second. And, and don't think too hard, but how in the world are you going to catch somebody in the very act of adultery in their bedroom without have setting it up ahead of time? I personally believe that one or more of the men in the crowd set it up. They were there, and I'm not too sure, 
and I'm pretty sure actually in my own imagination, that one of those men, at least one of those men in that crowd, was the guy. Uh, you'll, you'll understand why by the time I'm done. I think it was a setup. They were looking not for justice, not for righteousness. They were looking to trap Jesus. Remember, they just got their fingers slapped because their deputies wouldn't bring him back. They're frustrated. They want to do away with this guy. He's threatening their religious power. So, they're trying to get him, and they're going to go to any length. So I think one of their buddies who was having an affair, they went to him and said, Look, we know you're having an affair. We won't squeal on you. But... Let us be in the closet. That way we can go, and we'll go to Jesus. We'll see what he does. Sanctified imagination. But somehow or the other, they caught her in the very act. That's pretty hard. In fact, as I know the Old Testament says that if you're going to stone someone, you have to have a minimum of two witnesses. Three is even better. So there had to be a minimum of two guys as witnesses. Now, I'll tell you what. I don't know how you do that. They must have had pretty big closets. That's all I know. I, I, I don't know what else to tell you. So I think it's a setup. And they know the, the evidence is clear. They're like, no uncertain terms, this lady committed adultery. So they knew the man. They knew who the man was. Now, when you get to the Old Testament, because they're living under the Old Testament law, they knew the law. That's what their job was. They knew... That, to stone someone, to bring a death penalty to someone who is committing adultery, you could never stone one person. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, make it very clear that you shall bring the death penalty to the adulterer and the adulteress. So they know the guy's name, but won't bring it up. So... What they're doing is they're, they have no legal charges. Remember, sin has a number of different avenues. If you steal and you get caught, you're going to pay a penalty, maybe fines, maybe some jail time or whatever. That's a legal thing. But there are also the moral and spiritual consequences of sin. In this case, they wanted him to do something civilly, judicially, without bringing proper evidence. And that's why when he says, aren't they condemning you? The answer is, no, they did not bring the evidence. They simply weren't going to do that. Now, there are still spiritual consequences to all sin. So even if you steal and you don't get caught, you still, like pastor, uh, a pastor in the, the Scarlet Letter, you still have the psychological and, and spiritual consequences of sin. That's just the way it is. And you will have to deal with that whether you legally got caught or not. In this case, they wanted to bring legal consequences without bringing the proper evidence. In fact, is they were hiding evidence. They were withholding the truth. I believe that either one in the group or their friends or somebody else, uh, their acquaintances, they were protecting. They were using the woman for their purposes. Not only were they not out for justice or righteousness, but they were now using somebody else in their scheme. Always happens when people get into sin, they start using other people because they become insensitive and they don't care about anybody else. It always happens in sin. And one other thing that you may not know, this woman, all she would have had to do is blurt out a name. 
And it was evidence. <laughs> she would have said, yeah, it's John or Sam or whoever it happens to be. She doesn't do that either. She remains silent about this whole thing. She was pretty smart. Think about this. If she said the name of the guy and he was there or not there, they would have go get him. Not only would he be stoned also, but then she'd be stoned. That, that would have been the evidence. Now, it's improper venue, of course. But nonetheless, they could have taken it to the Sanhedrin and it would have been legal evidence. But uh, she didn't do that. So it's the wrong person, wrong place, wrong venue. And they were using the law in an improper way. A lot of people say, yeah, well, did you notice the end there? It says, he that's without sin, cast the first stone, throw the first stone. All stonings, every single stoning that ever took place in the Old Testament or in New Testament times, the times of Christ, all of them were carried out by sinful people. There is no such thing as a person without sin. It just doesn't happen because all of us have sin. And so it cannot be that he was just saying, okay, you're, you're a bunch of judgmental old guys, you know, so, you know, just leave her alone. That's what a lot of people think. That's simply not the tenor of the whole thing. In fact, I believe the way it's written, when you look at it, you see saying, okay, which one of you isn't involved in some way, way shape, or form with adultery? Just remember, they came saying, we know the man. So they're justifying sin. They know the guy, but they want the woman taken care of, gotten rid of. Back of my mind, I'm going, this lady is, she's a liability if she's alive. Let's get rid of the evidence. <laughs> because she could, anytime she wanted to, uh, tell on us. And we're in big trouble with our wives, with the law, with whatever. So they're trying to get rid of her. Verse 5. It says there, thou the law of Moses commanded to stone such a woman. As I already mentioned, only, the only way that could be taken uh, and carried out legally under the law was both people. And they said, well, what do you say? You know, what are you going to say? Well, there was a legal way to do this. And, and I'll do it very quickly. But if you were to go to the rest of the Gospels at the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ himself... It was, uh, it was a sham in many ways, but it was done correctly to some, in some ways. First, they went to Annas, the high priest, in the middle of the night. He sent them off to, he was the high priest's father-in-law. He sent them off to Caiaphas, who was the high priest of that time. By that time, there was a little time delay there. He could call together some of the other Sanhedrin. They have a trial in the middle of the night, which wasn't legal. And the next day, when the whole council, the council is Sanhedrin, when the whole council comes together, they condemn him. And so they send him off with their officers to the praetorium where Pilate is. Pilate is the one ruling over the Jews. Understand, the Romans, when they conquered the world, the known civilized world, what they allowed is autonomy to a large extent to the conquered people. Israel is no, no different than this. They basically ran themselves. Rome kind of stayed out. As long as you paid your taxes, Rome kind of stayed out of it. That's why tax collectors were such horrible people in the Jewish eyes. I mean, they were traitors. But the one thing that Rome wouldn't allow them to do is carry out an execution. So some people say, oh, well, they, they didn't do those kinds of things in Jesus' day. If they would have done it properly, they could have done it. How do I know that? Because they did it to Jesus. 
And so they take them, take, they take him to the praetorium to Pilate. And Pilate says, well, hey, you know, you have the accusations, carry it out. And they said, hold on a second, we do not have the power to put anyone to death. And they put it right back on Pilate because that was the rule. Pilate, meanwhile, thinks, he finds out he's from Galilee and he says, hey, Herod's in town. Now, Pilate and Herod are not friends. They are absolutely not friends. They don't even like each other at this point. He says, you know what? I don't really want to deal with this. I'll send him to Herod. He sends him to Herod. Herod talks to him a little bit. Herod doesn't want to deal with it either. He sends him back. You know what the Bible says? From this day forward, Herod and Pilate were buddies. He sends him back to Pilate. Pilate still doesn't want to deal with it. But the Jewish lawyers, and that's what many of them were, uh, they were advocating on behalf of Jewish society. They were saying, we want him crucified. And that's exactly, and he says, okay, and he sends him off to crucifixion. If they wanted this lady real justice, they could have done it. And it still carried out. The Romans would have had to give a stamp of approval, but it still could have been carried out. Would have been carried out very differently, maybe. But nonetheless, remember, the, the bottom line of this story is they are trying to get Jesus in trouble. Real sin, real circumstance, but an ulterior motive. They've set the trap. I try not to get nervous about a whole lot of things. There's still something in my life, a very small thing, that just makes me nervous. Every now and then, we live in a farmhouse. Every now and then, we get them furry little four-legged critters with tails. My wife does not like them very much. I don't like them either. Do you know what the worst part of it is? Not, I'm not scared of mice. Setting the trap! <laughs> Those traps are so sensitive, and they got to be because those mice know how to eat something off without disturbing it. You take one of those old bale traps, and I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, you know, right on edge, you know. And you, you set it, and then by the time, and then even if you you set it down, and it goes like that and snaps, and it scares the daylights out of you, even though you know what's going to happen. Hey, you want to make sure your fingers are out of there because it's not going to hurt you badly, but it's going to scare the daylights out of you. Well, these guys have set the trap. The trap comes back to snap their fingers. That's what happens to these guys in the end. Because they said, okay, you know what? Um, what are we going to do? They tested him. They, they wanted to have something to accuse him. They haven't been able to catch him. Why? Because his words in life are true. He doesn't do anything that violates the law. He isn't disrespectful to God. He's not disrespectful disrespectful to people. He loves, loves his Father in heaven. He loves the people. He tells them the truth. He lives the truth. They can't catch him. They have no legal grounds to get him, so they're trying a trap. Well, this trap is one that's going to come back and snap their fingers really good. I think, if, by the way, you find any writings that say what Jesus wrote on the ground, please throw the thing away because it doesn't say what he wrote. And believe me, go on the internet, get a book out, you'll find out all kinds of people think what he wrote. It doesn't say. He did it twice. i got to tell you, the context tells me something a little different that's more important. Because right in the middle of this, remember, he'd been teaching, now he's in the middle of this controversy, and he just stoops down, starts writing on the ground. The ground would have been the pavement stones of the temple grounds doesn't matter what he's writing. Personally, I think he's doodling. 
He's like, would you guys get out of here? You have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know how much trouble you're going to get yourselves into here in a few moments. You don't know how great an object lesson you're going to give me for this whole crowd that's now gathered around. <laughs> I think he's just giving them a chance to get away. And he does the second time, in fact. And they persisted, verse 7, they come back and they keep hounding him. Well, are you going to give us an answer? They're pressuring him. So he, stands, he straightens back up and he said to them, Okay, you without sin, you be the first to throw stone at her. The Old Testament not only said that if somebody was caught in adultery, that both of them would be sinned and there had to be at least two or three witnesses. It also said one more thing. It said that if you bring a charge, you will be the one. The ones that brought the charge, so that means there's at least two or three. You had to be the first two or three to throw the stones. And what you also need to know from the Old Testament, if you brought a false charge, the same thing you wanted to happen to the other person was going to happen to you. Perjury was dealt with straight up. Okay? That's the way it was. They're living under the law. So he says, okay, you want to do this? Wrong venue, wrong person, wrong place. But if you want to do it, go ahead. And whichever one of you has no sin, and I believe the context here will say, and you don't know anything about this adultery or adultery itself, you cast the first stone. You know who left first? The old guys. They got it quick. They're like, whoa, we're in big trouble. Because they knew the law. Remember, they know the law better than you and I do. They knew exactly what was going on. They're like, you know what? Best to get out of here while the going is good. Now, can you imagine? Imagine this. The crowd has gathered. Remember, these people were very interested in hearing what Jesus had to say that were gathered around. Then there were the curiosity seekers, the rest of them. Here are these guys, spiritual leaders, heads of Israel, having to walk through that crowd to get out of there. A lot of red faces that day, folks, because they just got their fingers snapped. Because what they were doing was illegal and immoral and unethical and everything else because they weren't doing it for the right purposes. He had, he had stooped down one more time to write in the ground, and that's when they leave. And after he knows they left, she's standing there, he's standing there, and I believe the crowd's still around there. He's not talking about the crowd, but there's no reason for the crowd to leave. And he says, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? The truth of the matter is, no, they did not bring condemning evidence. They didn't bring the evidence. They needed to bring a guy to make the evidence stick. They didn't bring him. And she said, no one, and the next word is important, no one, Lord. The guys who were just condemning her, they didn't see him as Lord, master, ruler, the one with the right to take over their lives. They didn't see that at all. They saw him as a troublemaker, a rebel. They didn't like him. They wanted to get rid of him. She turns around and says, no one, Lord. I don't believe this woman went out. She came in there a sinner, and I believe she went out of there a saved sinner. And I'll tell you why in a moment. But she has a whole change. She in no way, shape, or form says, I didn't do it. 
He never said to her, oh, your sins are forgiven in some kind of benediction or something like, oh, you've confessed your sins, so now they're, they're gone. He doesn't do any of those kinds of things. He does something very different. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. Well, they hadn't brought any real evidence, so there was no legal condemnation. But then he makes one more statement. And this is the, probably the most important thing of all this. He said, from now on, sin no more. Now, a lot of people think, okay, this is Jesus, and he is just warm-hearted and fuzzy and, and all emotional, and he doesn't deal with sin, and sin isn't really all that bad. So he kind of glosses over or minimizes sin. That is not what he is doing at all. Think this through. You know what the rest of the Bible says? If he said to this woman, go and sin no more, and she was not at that point a believer, he just asked her, told her to do something that's totally impossible for her to do. Because if you could go and sin no more, you don't need a Savior. So he's not going to tell her to do something that is not true, it's not possible. But when she said, no one, Lord... I believe at that point she became a true believer. As a result of that, she could go and not continue in sin because she now had the power of God living in her to be able to deal with the sin. Otherwise, she had no power to go in sin no more. And that is true for all of us. When we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, He now doesn't get rid of all temptation and all sin and all those kinds of stuff. He doesn't make us not sin. But when we trust Christ, He now today, not then, but today, gives us the indwelling Holy Spirit that we can deal with any temptation, any circumstance, and we can, by faith, live out what's already true of us. We have the righteousness of God. And as a result of that, we can live righteous lives. And that's what he is saying to her. I don't condemn you legally, but I've got to tell you spiritually, you called me Lord, go and sin no more. This passage in no way, shape, or form makes Jesus some warm, soft, softy on sin. He's very clear. The last words to her is, go and sin no more. He didn't let her off the hook. He didn't say, oh, these guys tried to use you and uh, they did the wrong thing and all that and they were just trying to trick me, so you know what, don't worry about it. No. He took her for what it really was and he knew that she was guilty because if she wasn't guilty and he said, go and sin no more, then he's really not speaking truth either. But he just says, you know what, go and sin no more. He dealt with sin. He dealt with sin for what it is. It's wrong. It's ugly. It's nasty. It's bad. It's sinful. And he said, go and sin no more. I like the story. Because it tells us you need to do the right thing the right way. They didn't. It tells us don't use people. They did. It tells us who he is. And he faced things exactly the way they are and dealt with them as only he could do. Because he was the one that said, I didn't come to judge this world. I came that the world might be saved. And that's what he wanted. I believe this is a really great illustration of that statement. Didn't minimize sin. 
but he sure did maximize the power of salvation and what it has to do with not only here and now, but for the future. She could leave there a changed woman. You know the sad part of this story? The sad part of the story is that there were scribes and Pharisees, spiritual men, leaders, who left unsaved, unchanged. There was a lady who left changed. And here's the really cool part. Those that were observing, they got the object lesson of their life. Other than things like resurrection, it gets pretty high up on my scale. Jesus Christ took what was a test to him, straightened it out, and used it to teach those who were really interested. I propose to you that we have a lot to learn. When you see things happen, you can point fingers, you can do all kinds of wrong stuff, you can do all kinds of right stuff, but learn from it. These people did also. Let's all stand together as we're dismissed in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the provision that you've made for us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for our salvation. Lord, we thank you that... uh, Sin does indeed bring condemnation. It brings horrible consequences. But Lord, we thank you that you have died for the sins of the whole world. You never promised to take away the consequences, but you did promise that you would take away the guilt of all of our sin. We thank you for that. But most of all, you said that you would forgive us and cleanse us because we're born with a sin nature. We need a Savior. We need someone who has died and paid the price for our sin. We thank you that Jesus Christ has done that for us. And I pray that as we leave here today, we would be reminded that not only has he died for our sins so that we can be set free from them, but Lord, he's died so that we can live, as Jesus told the woman, that we can go from this place and sin less and less. We do not have to continue on in our old ways, but that we can live in the light of the gospel, the good news of forgiveness of sins made available by the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for that, and we praise you that you've reminded us of that today. We thank you in Jesus' name.